Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Kurt and I talk to practitioners and researchers of behavioral science about the mother of all questions. Why do we do what we do? But before we get to that question, I have a question for you, Kurt. Sure. Is it about my mother? <laughs> no, it's not about it's your mother. It's the mother of all questions. No. I thought it was going to be about my mom. No, it's I not. I love my mom, by the way. Okay. I love, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. okay. That was really sweet. <laughs> but no, it's about your business. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you have a lot of very successful clients, uh, and many of them are multi-billion dollar firms. And in order to keep growing, they need to do a lot of things right, right? They need to innovate, right? So of the companies that you work with that are doing really well, what role does innovation play in their success? Well, I think it's pretty huge, right? Um, I'm not sure that without continuous innovation that most of the successful companies I work with would still be be here today. Yeah. Obviously, product innovation is key, but what I also see is that really good companies regularly innovate lots of things, like how they communicate with their customers or their employees, or the ways they motivate their, their team, or the process they use to develop their strategic plans. I mean, it's easy to imagine that companies that rely on the same old way of doing things, i.e. the status quo, year after year, keep doing the same thing. I'm pretty sure that those have all faded away. Yeah. And that's the point that our guest, Adam Hansen, makes in his book, Outsmart Your Instincts. Adam is a professional innovator by trade and has successfully applied behavioral science to the realm of innovation throughout his entire career. His book, with co-authors Ed Harrington and Beth Storrs, reveals the ways companies can leverage behavioral science principles in a bunch of innovation-rich areas like ideation and product development. Our conversation with Adam was fun, engaging, and really thought-provoking. Adam also gets a trophy for the longest speed round we've ever oh had. Oh my God, no kidding. E- even with him knowing what the questions were in advance. All right, we discussed the role that common biases play in keeping us from innovating, some ideas that you can take to work with you tomorrow morning on innovation, including the tremendous power of yes and, and we're going to add a twist to that as well, and the need for a behavioral revolution. Wow, but did you say behavior revolution? Behavioral revolution. That's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I, uh, Adam thinks we're on the verge of something huge with behavioral science and that it's going to have a revolution that takes over the world. God, I, I hope he's right, at least within ethical boundaries. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, that's the behavioral groups thing. So I also want to say that I found Adam's comments in our musical discussion to be some of the most fun ever. <laughs> Although we did go down a little bit of a musical rabbit hole with the major thirds. You, I recall you instantly got that a major thirds, what it sounds like when we're talking about the monkeys, Pleasant Valley Sunday. Like you totally got it. That was cool. You know, I still have no freaking clue what a major third is. Right. And, and I, I mean, I know who the monkeys are, but I can like come the Pleasant Valley Sunday for if it had to save my life. So no, no. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes so you can yeah. check it out. All right, I will link for it, but I still know I'm not going to figure out what a major third is. Anyway, we want to remind you that one of the ways behavioral groups find new finds new listeners is through search algorithms. A key factor for search engines to serve up a podcast is the number and quality of ratings and reviews. It doesn't even take a full second, as Tim would say, to leave us a five-star rating. So please, Take a moment and leave us a rating. Yeah, it is super, super easy. Just jump down to the bottom of your app and you'll see those five yellow stars just waiting to be filled in. Just lonely 
They are so lonely waiting to be filled in. All five stars, All right? <laughs> and, and you don't want to leave three stars with two because that just feels incomplete. Or four. Oh. No, no, you got to give all five stars because <laughs> otherwise it's incomplete. If you just touch your screen with those five stars, boom. Boom. Yeah. It blows up. And, oh, my oh, God. No. You get a big hit of dopamine in your brain. And ah. it feels so good. And just so you know, if you've not left us a rating, you know, because you're shy, well, guess what? Ratings are anonymous. So don't let that stop you. Also, if you like this podcast, be sure to check out Weekly Grooves, our new weekly short-form grooving session podcast that puts a behavioral lens on a hot topic in the news or in our minds, because anything that's in our minds is a hot topic, right? Right? Always. Yeah. Always. So it is now up on Apple Podcasts as well as most other pod services. So after you leave a five-star review for Behavioral Grooves, go out and subscribe to Weekly Grooves. You won't regret it. And with that... We will ask you to sit back in your favorite podcast listening chair with a big cup of major thirds, because for all I know, it's a newfangled drink, and enjoy our conversation with Adam Hansen. Adam Hansen, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This is fantastic. This is seriously more fun than a barrel full of poorly socialized monkeys. <laughs> Good. Although uh, Tim and I are kind of poorly socialized we're, we're, monkeys, so we're just not a full barrel. You just yeah. got two of us. At All right. From time to time. Okay. Uh, we start with a speed round. So, Tim. Coffee or tea? Uh, depends. Uh, yeah, I, this is going to be tough because I, I, I eschew hard, firm answers a lot. But This is the speed round. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's context dependent. Uh Man, at the right moment, a good tea really hits the spot. Okay. All right, Adam. <laughs> you, you understand the concept of a speed round. Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to give you another chance. We're going to have you go here. Uh, bicycle or unicycle? Uh, always intrigued by those who can pull off the unicycle, but uh, unique but not relevant. So I would say, <laughs> uh, you know, in innovation, we're always focusing on the intersection. I got to go with bike. All right, oh, there you God. go. This is the longest speed run I think we've ever had. <laughs> get ready, guys. Get ready. All right, is it, it going to get worse? Okay, so would you would you prefer to give up your mobile phone or a laptop for a year? Oh, man. Yeah, and I know these questions, too, and and, and knowing them didn't really yeah, I mean, didn't, it didn't exactly. help. Exactly. We asked those, those questions are kind of pretty pretty common uh, if you've never listened to the show. I, I think – uh, I'm kind of gaming this because I see the direction things are going. Uh, I think the answer. <laughs> really? I, I don't. Well, no, I, no, no, I don't know. I'm overstating that. So I'll say uh, I got to go with laptop. All right. Yeah. Okay. You give up your laptop for a year. No, no, no. I I need my laptop. I'd give up my oh, phone. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually, yes. pay attention to how the question was phrased. Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the test. All right. Here, <laughs> last failing. question. Last speed round question, and then right. and then we're going to have to wrap it up because there we are. Thank you so much. Oh, there you go. Thank you very much, folks. All right. Uh, no, cognitive biases, blessing or a curse when it comes to innovation. Uh, net curse, uh, but I mean, just like everything else. Um, you know, few things have an inherent valence. Um, yep. When when conditions are such that that match uh, the you know match the conditions under which these cognitive biases evolved, it's great to be able to recur to them. Great, awesome. 
Well, that was about your best speed run answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> From a timing perspective, just a time. Don't, don't. All right. Well, well, Adam, we, we have you on because you, uh, along with uh, Edward Harrington and Beth Stowers, did I say their name right? You got it. Uh, it's written a, a new book called, called Outsmart Your Instincts, How the Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward. So we want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but, but just for our listeners, give a little background. Who, who, who are you? Why, you know, what got you into this behavioral world that we, that we talk about on this And why write a damn book about it? Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, there's some self-flagellation going on there, obviously, but, um, I would say, so just quickly, I'm, um, was always a creative kid. Um, you know, uh, I got some idea, maybe, you know, timing, you know, I got the idea in the early eighties that, Hey, it'd probably be good to go on and get an MBA, uh, had some sense that innovation would be part of my career based on what, who knows, I don't know. Things I'd read seemed interesting in grad school, took my first new product development class. The professor made the case you could do your whole bloody career in innovation, which was news to me. Uh, and I thought, man, if you could do that, why wouldn't you? And so I really got that. I really had that light bulb moment and a great professor became a great mentor and friend and with whom I still speak at least a few times a year. Um, and so then kind of, yeah, my whole career has been in innovation over, you know, 30 plus years now. Spent the first, uh, it was half at one point, but now I guess it's about a third on the client side. Lastly, as innovation director at Mars, the candy company. So I got to be Willy Wonka for a few years. Ooh, that um, sounds that's pretty sweet, yeah. right? Pretty yeah, sweet job. Very sweet. Very, yeah. <laughs> very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my kids thought I had the coolest job ever. Uh, I became a client of the company I'm with now, the consulting firm Ideas to Go, while I was there. And then I knew at some point I was going to join the dark side. Uh, and so I've been with Ideas to Go now for about 18 and a half years. Um, I'm a geek. And, and so th- have you heard the, the, uh, the idea that people who are good at innovation are T shaped? All right. Explain that so, a little bit. So there's this, you know, great breadth, a lot of, you know, high level dilettantism, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but kind of, you know, interest in a lot of things, a lot of things across, and, across and, the top of the T. Yeah. Across the top of the T. And then at least in one area, a descender, you know, comes down. Um, and so, you know, kind of what, uh, comes down for me really is innovation. And I've been fascinated with innovation for even before going into grad school and have just read a lot about it and just seemed like it's such a cool capability that we have. And it seems like there's so much that can be done there. And the thought of constantly innovating innovation itself, that kind of seemed to me kind of fairly self-evident, like <laughs> not to hate on any of the competition, but. I think too many people are just using the same old tried and true ways to innovate. And you kind of go, well, do you really like innovation? You're like, what's a- <laughs> like- <laughs> right. Cause isn't the idea of innovation to innovate, not just yeah. to use the same old thing, not to give into status quo bias. Yeah. Meta innovation. Yeah. There you go. It's meta. It's absolutely. And so as part of that, I really started reading a lot. I don't know when Kahneman, you know, first got on my radar, but it was probably, probably at least 12, 13, 14 years ago or so, just started reading more and more. And then I started seeing some really obvious parallels with what Mm -hmm. we were doing. We were already doing things to mitigate uh, certain cognitive biases without necessarily having that framework in mind. 
because, you know, humans, I mean, we're still just dealing. Yeah. Uh, and we noticed that there were some propensities that humans had that were non-conscious and weren't particularly helpful when trying to do innovation better. And um, I'll, I'll speak, I think all of us, for all of us at Ideas Go, this is true. It's certainly true for me. I just absolutely love innovation. And the thought that innovation would in any way be a drag for someone is just, to me, just seems absolutely tragic. And so we just started thinking about how do we make, how do we just clear the brush? How do we get rid of those non-conscious gremlins that add no value and are making innovation unnecessarily difficult uh, so that then people can apply their their care, their concern, their forces and everything to the real fights that still are going to need to be fought. But you just get past all the, you know, kind of the, the non-conscious stuff that just is really unnecessarily uh, keeping you back. And so that's, bit, I mean, quickly seeing, you know, finding out the term negativity bias and all the research that have been done on and everything. And that's really cr- critical to the work that we do. And so I started using the term negativity bias about a dozen years ago. And then, mm-hmm. oh, availability bias. Yeah, well, we do something for that too. We do creative excursions when we go into kind of these, these um, opportunity areas for ideation uh, and and the, the purpose of the creative excursions is to get you thinking about that topic in a non-obvious way. So you don't just go with the, the stimuli that are most, you know, available just immediately um, available to you with, you know, with all the bias that can, can come with yeah. that. And so it's really, it's just kind of bit by bit. Then we started noticing, oh, conformity bias. Yeah, we know what that is. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so it really was kind of the stepwise thing until we finally said, hey, this, we might actually have something here. So let's. Let's formalize it a little bit more. Maybe we actually go to the extent of writing a dang book about it. Yeah. So you codified it. You put it in the book. So help us understand the and the book is laid out in a really interesting manner. You want to you want to explain a little bit how you guys structured the book, uh, both in in the ideation process and then also in the in the Execution. heuristics, the the, the oh, biases oh, yeah. that were there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we so as we started to look at these various cognitive biases, we thought, well, okay, how far does this go? <laughs> like, how much attention should we place on uh, various cognitive biases? Which ones ultimately are really accounting for most of the mayhem in the at the front part of innovation? Uh, so at one point, I mean, I, I was playing with a list of you know twenty plus uh, with the idea that hey, we're going to winnow these down and everything. Um, so that's kind of the the working on the cognitive biases. We got down to eight, uh, and quickly negativity, availability, conformity, confabulation, uh, curse of knowledge, confirmation bias, uh, status quo bias, errors of framing. I might have missed one, but uh, <laughs> those, those. I those, think you got. I them. think that's I it. Think yeah, those, those are most of it. I mean, I should at this point, I should just be able to rattle them off like that, but. Um, in terms of then kind of the structure then, so we go each chapter is a bias. Yeah, we have the setup, but then the, the bulk of it is each chapter is one of the eight, one of those eight cognitive biases. Uh, and then we walk through the chapter kind of in chronological order of the, of the innovation process. So first is opportunity area finding. How do you even know where to play? How do you find the right kind of strategic arena to play in and everything? Biases affect how you do that. And, and you can... You can do that better. You can do that worse, and we see uh, <laughs> we see that if, uh, evidence of that all the time. Um, so, being attentive to which of the biases, like what's going on with conformity bias in opportunity area uh, mm. hunting, you know, and so kind of being attentive to that, 
looking for where we could help people, again, get past some of those. The next stage, um, once you know where you're going to play, we do ideation, brainstorming plus, you know, um, and that's then once you know where you want to play, how can you come up with lots and lots and lots of great ideas with the idea that um, Linus Pauling said the best way to get good ideas is first to get lots of ideas. So you can start having ideas that you never would have gotten to otherwise. You never would have had the reason to get to otherwise. Uh, and then it's that back and forth. It's that collaboration. It's hearing one of your colleagues or someone else in the team say something and go, oh, wow, had never thought about that. That just cracked open something for me. And now I can generate, you know, I can generate seven to 12 ideas just based on that kind of aha that I just got. Uh, so ideation is really critical. Uh, and then from ideation, the next step is then um, we call it concept development or just kind of like, what's your next step? How do you actually get into how do you how do you converge on these ideas, bring the best ones forward and flesh them out in a way that you can actually go into testing and see what's rising to the top? Uh, and so kind of throughout what we're driving for is the intersection of uniqueness and relevance. It's got to be both. If it's just unique but not relevant. You go, oh, that's really cool. And then you try it and you go, great. I never need to do that again. Uh, <laughs> if it's only- Kind of like listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to make- no, 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 making no. the argument for both here, gents. Yeah, um, if it's only relevant, you can barely have a business. You have to throw, right. you have to support it so much and try to cut through the clutter and everything. It's me too. You, you certainly can't charge any kind of premium. It's hard to be profitable if you're only relevant. And so what you really want to do is find that intersection of uniqueness and relevance. The research shows the best way to get there is to solve for uniqueness first and then get to work on – get on the task then of beefing up with relevance. So then why is negativity bias such an important thing for you to address? Because this, yeah. this is a central theme in the book. Why is negativity bias at the heart of this? It's the first bias we talk about because for the kind of work we do, its effects are outsized. Um, and so we're wired to, um, it was adapted for our ancestors to, uh, identify all novelty first and foremost as threat, not as opportunity. There were enough who got the opportunity part as well. And thank God, because they could open up stuff for it. But overall, if you heard a different rustle in the bushes than what you were used to, uh, it just made sense to get the hell out of there. Uh, yeah. and, and those, um, of our ancestors, colleagues who were the more inquisitive, those more like me, uh, <laughs> would have gone, Hey, there, there's just something different enough to that Russell that, that I'm going to see if I can figure out what's going on here. Uh, when they didn't put as much distance between them and the Russell as possible, their genetic fate took a certain, uh, you know, statistical hit. No, no, no more DNA. Uh, yeah, exactly. That, that, exactly. That, that tree ended. So, yeah. so it's really fair to say, playing that all through, is that we are the descendants of the savants of risk aversion, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the people who are very, okay. the very best at going, no, I'm out of here. Whoa, you know, we're the ones <laughs> more likely to stick around long enough to to pass on their DNA, and so that we still have this in us. We don't need to blame ourselves. We don't need to blame each other. And we come by it very honestly. But the great news is that we can do something about it. And so we just need to be aware of it. Um, some of the other great research, I mean, there um, two women in particular, I think have done a beautiful job of really fleshing out the opportunity um, of 
being more conscious about negativity bias. Uh, Teresa Amabile at Harvard mm-hmm. wrote a really great paper called, uh, uh, oh, what was it now? Cruel, but, oh, brilliant, but cruel. And it was an analysis of, of managers who reviewed employees and those who are more negative. Uh, when you first hear it, you go, man, that's really smart. That sounds so adult. That's so responsible. That's so businesslike. And so your response goes in that direction and negativity appears more profound than it actually is. When you go back (laughs) and you reflect on it a little bit, you might realize that the quality of that input wasn't really all that stellar. Mm. Uh, But because, you know, the amygdala, you know, kicks in, you know, you go, oh, yeah, wow. Of of course, that's right. I've seen enough evidence that can support that. Um, And so being just it's not that we can never focus on problems. It's just that the most reactive way of doing it is is rarely the smartest way of dealing with the problems, uh, and then, and just the idea. I mean, we all know too many people. Um, my experience is many of us <laughs> know people throughout our careers. We bumped into the people who dine out on this idea that negativity seems smarter than it actually is. You know, <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm looking at myself we all do it to some degree we all do it. but I yes. would love to I would love to figure out ways to uh, call that out in, in as face saving a way as possible but I would like for that to become increasingly unseemly for you know for people to do be aware of what the issues are yes but it's not sufficient merely to point out that you don't like it, that that sucks, that that isn't working. I have no more information. I don't know what to do if that's where it stops. So take take that um, great identification of an issue and go, okay, then what are some steps forward? What do you wish for? How might we then get to work on that? And, And even negative feedback, if used generatively, can crack open even more opportunity um, what's great about this when you use it well is that it can shine specific light on opportunity instead of just kind of leaving you with this vague unease about how an idea might, you know, not be all that fantastic. Well, and you had, in the book, you also talk about, uh, the yes, but yeah. versus yes. And, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the classical improv component. Yeah. So bringing that out into the world, right. So you, you can, address some of that negativity bias by looking at things and saying, all right, so instead of saying yes, but, which is a, a way that we often do it, right? We come, we approach things. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, yeah. I don't really think that's going to work. Uh, and, and bringing in that component of saying yes. And now you're being generative, right? You're, you're, you're adding well, exactly. to that conversation. And so what happens there is it's all too easy to go straight to what isn't working. And so, um, we do throw the baby out with the bathwater and we really want to avoid that where, where we go is even a step beyond yes. And to say, first affirm what is working in the idea. Great. Mm. So what are you for? What are you really for in that idea? What do you like? What's the potential that you see there? Even with a really weird idea, if you actually consider it and play with it, you can say, how does that start getting me thinking differently in a way? The idea itself might still actually blow, but, (laughs) but, I can use it. I can be mercenary with it. And now I can, I can use a f- one facet of it to open up a whole new area of inquiry and, and kind of exploration for me. Uh, and then where I think we go beyond yes and is yes and often just 
ignores entirely what the problems are. We mm. say even use the problems in a generative way because we're going to take it on good faith that, yeah, I mean, you're not just trying to be a Debbie Downer. There are some issues there. This is not an exercise in Pollyanna riding a unicorn, uh, you, you know. So, so even use those negatives, but using language like I wish for, I wish to, how might we, what if we. So now mm. you even use the negatives to come up with more ideas instead of using right. the negatives just to make the idea go away. In yeah. which case you actually, you got, you extracted no value from the idea at all. You know, in the book you talk, uh, uh, there were a couple things that really caught me. One is uh, uniquely human traits, creativity, yeah, yeah. metacognition, love that, that you bring those forward. Uh, it almost sounds like you, in general, you feel like people are undervaluing metacognition and creativity. Well, I think so. And maybe some of it is just, you know, I, I guess I got to look at the Google Ngram viewer or whatever, you know, like you type in a term, you see how often it gets used. Uh, my guess is still a lot of people aren't familiar with the term. Uh, I, I think most people get the concept when, when it's first explained to them, but what they probably haven't heard is why it would matter to spend much time dealing with it. And, and so the thought is metacognition is just thinking about thinking and it's being more conscious about where we're going on. It's, it's being able to step away from automaticity, mm-hmm. right. And say, okay, some, a lot of things just happen and then we confabulate and come up with a really smart rationale for why we, we did what we did. Thank, Thank goodness we uh, do, because that yeah. saves my life a lot of times, <laughs> well, that, that good rationalization. Absolutely. We all, we all have to, we, we have to be able to do that. Uh, but we have to be able to do more than just that as well, right? Uh, and so um, just being more aware, trying to like be maybe a little more curious about why you arrive at the places that you do. You know, why do you make the decisions that you do? Um, and just being, I think curiosity is so huge. Um, it wasn't that long ago in our, in our culture that curiosity was still seen as a very naughty thing. You know, kids were taught that curiosity was bad. Curiosity killed the cat, blah, 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 blah. Uh, And again, in harsher times, that probably made a whole lot of sense. And that was a very safe and responsible approach. It's it. I increasingly, I believe it's irresponsible uh, Mm. just to lapse into that and not to be able to go, okay, let's think about this. Let's, Let's play with this some. Let's let's see where things can go. So metacognition is just being just more aware of how we think. And then realizing that, you know, as um, uh, Frankel, Victor Frankel said, you know, there, Frankel, yeah. there's, a, there's a gap between, st- there can be a gap between stimulus and response. Yeah. And in that gap is where humans can do things that other animals can't. Uh, and so not to be able to, to do that more often, it seems like such a waste of capability not to do those things that only we can do as humans places us at, at no advantage over those life forms that can't do that. Right. So we, we, we have some of those better abilities. I think the world needs us tapping into that more to, well, to be, and, to be fully human. Well, and I think that's, a, that, yeah, yeah. that's, that's what, that's what behavioral science does, right? Yeah. We're looking at that idea of how are you thinking about something and what is that gap as Fr- Victor Frankl said, you know, stimulus versus response what happens in that gap. Absolutely. And that is what behavioral science studies. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, I also like in, in, in the book, you, you're a fan of Kurt Lewin. Oh and, yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. You, you know, and you talk about his, his model for progress. University of Iowa. There yeah. you go. <laughs> there you go. 
Of course, of course. Uh, but you, you know, you talk about this, this finding the balance, right? That 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 Lewin talks about, you know, the drivers and the restrainers, right? You know, and ultimately yeah. finding a balance. But that progress happens when the drivers actually overtake the the restrainers to some degree, right? Correct. That's how we actually get Correct. progress. Um, you yeah. do this with your clients. You you find a way to take things out of balance, right? Well, yeah, we do. I mean, we so. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the the Heisenga um, work on uh, Homo Ludens or the the playful ape, right? Um, and this whole concept of the magic circle. Anytime we play a game, we're stepping into this magic circle where all the outside rules and everything don't necessarily apply. We have our own set of rules here. That's what our projects are. You're stepping into a magic circle. You're it, it is a um, it's a twisted form of <laughs> of reality. Uh, and we still want to be able to tap into really rich insights and everything from your audience, from your audience and everything. But then we, we kind of suspend the normal way of being and we say, look, we're just going to, for this part right now, we're going to bracket some of the normal things that we do. And it is, it's a little unnatural. And some of our language is almost deliberately um, contrived mm-hmm. and, and frankly, dorky. <laughs> just to kind of draw attention to, but it helps. It does, it, 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 it does help. It really does. It's additive. Yeah. yeah. And I remember some of the first time I heard as a client, the first time I heard some of ideas to go's uh, contrived language, I, you know, I, you know, I'm sure I did a little bit of an eye roll, but uh, I've come to understand why it's helpful. You're actually stating, Hey, we're going to do this different thing now that it isn't as instinctive. Again, we're talking about outsmarting your instincts. And so as part of that, we're actually going to try get you to start practicing some things that might be able to become new instincts for you, which which yeah, is you, cool. you're trying to break the the system one automatic response Absolutely. and say no, no no we're going to push into something that you want to be a little more thoughtful and that's going to take a little effort it's, so and it, well you yeah want to bypass the system one right absolutely and the I, I, the point we want to make uh, because you know. Um, as you know, as we, who came up, resistance, uh, is often tied to a lack of clarity, not to just being obstinate, <laughs> you know? Mm. So we want to make it, yes, a little bit of effort. The great news is to mitigate these cognitive biases we talk about as little as three minutes of work can do a lot for you. So if you're trying to think up some new things, grab Grab anything, grab, you know, grab a book, you know, uh, randomly turn to page 54 and read a paragraph and go, oh, okay. Now, how do I smash, uh, smash associate what I just read there with what I'm working on? And the, gr- the brain is this wonderful associative tool that will somehow figure out how to stitch those two disparate items together. And so that's, uh, so, so availability bias can be solved as quickly as three minutes. So page 54 of Smart <laughs> talk about insight mining, category crashing, trend hunting, text search. I got, got a bunch underlined. You can look there, right there. There. Right uh, right good page. Good page. Right on. And, and uh, thank you for going with that as my plan, Kurt. That was <laughs> <laughs> You knew exactly what page you were talking to. No, but so you're bringing in these different concepts of saying, all right, so let's look at, let's do these exercises to, to put us in a, mindset that is going to allow us to 
uh, bypass some of these these heuristics, exactly, right? Exactly. And so that we're yep. getting to the point where we we actually can do the work that we want to do in a more effective way. Absolutely. Um, so. What are some other hints? What are some what are some things that uh, our listeners can do to be to to maybe um, be more innovative in their thinking? Uh, excellent. So one thing we'd have you all consider every now and again: ask yourself, where are we in the process? Like, what are we mm-hmm. doing? What's the task that we need to perform right now? And there will be other tasks that we need to perform later. But for them to intrude on what we're doing right now. Is a, is a little bit of a category error. So, so let's not do that. The headline I have for that is early on when you're doing this kind of work, worry more about learning than launch considerations. Uh, it's too Okay, explain that a little too bit. Easy, yeah. Pr- yeah. Particularly if we're doing new product uh, innovation or even a communications campaign, whatever it is. We're good business people. So we're constantly thinking about what this is going to look like when we actually put it out into the world. Um, but if those concerns supersede this this uh, need to explore and see where things can go and and matters of practicality, scalability, launchability, all that come in too early, you're not doing the work you need to be doing then. So learning, not launch. So when you go mm. into like when you take uh, prototypes or concepts into testing, your first and foremost consideration should be. What kind of a learning vehicle is this? What is this going to set me up to learn that I hope my competitors won't even want to bother with? Um, and then from that, after you do all that testing, you can actually you can actually even forget what the concepts or prototypes that you took in. You can actually just step back and say, okay, these benefits rose to the top. These insights seem to resonate the most, et cetera, et cetera. And you could almost then just kind of reconfigure from that learning what then would make the better launch vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just really being clear on what's going on. Um, the, the question that should haunt you in ideation, in opportunity area identification and everything is, are we going far enough? And the metaphor that we love to use is that when you go fishing, uh, your odds of, of really getting all the fish you want are better if you cast your line way out there and slowly reel it back in to find the spot where the fish are biting rather than just drop your line over the edge of the boat and hope you happen to be in the right place. Mm. Unless you happen to know that you're in the bass hole. Well, yeah. I mean, and if you have the fish finder and, 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 and all those cheating <laughs> and then that, and then you're not really fishing anymore. You're doing something else, which is just really unfair. <laughs> yes. That's a, it's totally. Wait, wait, wait. Is bass hole an actual thing? No, no, it's not. It I just now. made it up. <laughs> yeah, get, get, get the t-shirt folks. Get the t-shirt. Yeah, right. <laughs> it'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll have it uh, available in our next episode. No, but, so. the, but the metaphor is great because it, uh, again, it, it goes, it goes back to that Linus Pauling thing. Yeah. The best way to get the good ideas is to have lots of them. Yeah. So you, you have to you have to cast far. Yeah, and you and as soon as possible, you want to have these ideas coming in. You're just going like, wow, man, never would have thought about that before. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. And then not never to be too literal. Be really mercenary with ideas. It's not and like don't fall in love with ideas too early. Mm. Just be mercenary and go, oh, that's really great because it can then crack open something for me to think up 12 more ideas. Right. I love Which is, I think is really important because it is so many of our tendencies. Uh, most people in, uh, that I observe are willing to fall in love with the first idea. 
or something close to it. Yeah, and some and look, some ideas are great, and it's hard not to. But even there, go okay. Well, we we have that captured. So right at the moment, I my time isn't all that well spent to build an altar to it. Uh, right. Let's you know the more you can use ideas early on as vehicles to take you to yet better places, rather than as end destinations in themselves, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm sorry, I'm searching through the through the book because I had underlined some things about um, you brought in this idea of lateral thinking and and not having like the difficulty of actually bringing consumers in and customers yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. into the process because. As we were just saying, you know, we tend to glom onto that first idea or we can't <laughs> see beyond, you know, I use the product. I drink Coke like this. I always put it in a glass <laughs> like this. And this is exactly how I use it. You're asking me to put it on a backpack and suck it through a straw. No, I, what are you doing? You know, right. whatever that would be. Yeah. Bad example. I know. But, no, no, but what is it? What is it about that? You know, bringing in that that customer, what what are some of the drawbacks of of doing that? Well, it's, again, it's asking yourself, where are we in the process? Yeah. So when you get into testing, you want to bring in pretty representative, you know, you don't want to bring in savants. You, you want to yeah. bring in dumb people, but you want to bring in, you know, kind of the, the center of gravity of your audience. They uh, could bring us in. We, <laughs> we, we could be the savants. <laughs> no, we could be the dumb people. Oh, no, I would no. love to volunteer. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say that I'm terribly well qualified, but I'd love to volunteer for the savants. Oh, there you what, go. Uh, <laughs> what's true in any population, though, is that you will be able to find those people who are more imaginative, who are more articulate. And so we actually have a panel of what we call creative consumers, who are people mm. who are really nimble with metaphor. They're very articulate. They and not just nimble with metaphor, but they can even really go to weird metaphor, like unexpected metaphors. Yeah, and, and 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 both come up with them and then show you how you extract value out of them. You know, and so our panel of creative consumers, uh, these are normal people. They're not marketing people or advertising people because we don't want to expertize them in that regard. Uh, but and they are, you know, at least pretty loosely representative of, of who the client's target is but they have that additional capability. And so they can really help you with both the uniqueness and the relevance uh, because they have that imaginative capability, but then they're also, you know, pretty close to the, uh, who the consumer, the, the, the client's target is. Uh, right. And so having people with more of those capabilities early on can be super helpful. And then you go and build, you create your concepts, your prototypes, whatever. And then for testing, go back to the, uh, what we, one of my colleagues calls the the normals. The normals. <laughs> the normals. Well, it, it, you bring up another uh, example in the book about salad dressing. And, and the very first thing you say, you know, just think about salad dressing and, and come up with some innovation ways of, of thinking about it. And you said, normally, if you just do that, right, yeah. all of a sudden, it's like, oh, chocolate salad dressing or various different things. But it still was in this concept of salad dressing. But if you you laid it out then of saying, what are the concepts that you have of salad dressing? It's a liquid. It comes in a bottle. It's refrigerated. It's all these other things. And then you start taking some of those things away and then you can get really innovative in how you think about that. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So what, what, what is that process? So, I mean, so we call, do you, what do you call that? We call that assumption busting. And it's the idea that um, many of the assumptions that we make about a particular topic, item, whatever, are so baked in that we're not even aware that those are just decisions that someone else made at some point. You know, they're not, mm -hmm. you know, as Elon Musk says, as long as we're not abrogating the basic laws of physics, 
you know, <laughs> we, we probably have carte blanche to go do some exploring. And so assumption busting is just trying hard to list like what, like what are all the assumptions? What are, what are the non-conscious limits I'm placing on this? You know, the, 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 the whole idea of functional fixedness, you know, mm. it's hard for us to imagine using something, doing something in a way other than under which it was originally intended and, and, and most experience with it is, you know, lies within. Um, and so just really saying, look, some of those assumptions are, are maybe there for a reason and they're going to be hard to get past, but just playing with it, even if you can't entirely get rid of the assumption, you might be able to soften, you weaken some of its toughest constraints, open up just a little bit of freedom. And so what, what does, what do things look like on the other side of that assumption? You know, and so play there and then you still might have to come back into the real world and say, okay, we still have to deal with this. We still have to deal with this. But now we have so much more that we're armed with still to drive uniqueness and relevance that uh, that's it can be particularly helpful. Do you think we're on the verge of a behavioral revolution? I I don't want to get too grim. I think we have to be. I I think I think I I would wish overall for. Uh, some more urg- urgency around this. I just think, I, I, look, I suffer from confirmation bias as much as anyone. I mean, that's a, that's a fact about the cognitive biases. There you go. Yeah. We need to be humble and realize that we all are, are buffeted, <laughs> you know, by, by these gremlins. Um, so I'll cop to that. And then I'll also say, just because I shoot everything from the behavioral lens doesn't mean that it isn't the right thing to do. Uh, right. and, and I think the, the great news in all this again is it doesn't, I don't think it takes that much to get people going. You know, you can really mitigate some of the harshest effects of these cognitive biases with just some really simple things. It's just like, are you interested enough? You know, do you, do you actually want to try it? You know, how do we make it easier for people to play and to explore and everything? But I, I mean, just pick any of the big issues that we face i mean just like good lord what we've been going through politically i, I don't want to yeah. i don't want to divert too much here or anything and regardless yeah. of where you net out i think most people can agree uh this is this is bad this is broken you know <laughs> and so yeah. uh if, yeah. if, if, i mean just even there if you could stem the effects of negativity bias if you could help people understand confirmation bias better uh conformity bias <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and everything. I just think, you know, uh, there, there's something that just occurred to me just like within the last month is a, is a weird, overly fancy term that I'm, I'm trying to explore. It's the notion of personal creative sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I want people to figure out why that would matter to them. We need to give enough of a damn about what we're doing, where we're going, what contribution we're making to the world and everything that uh, I wish people were a little more independent of just kind of like the most partisan impulses, be that politics or whatever. Fashion. Everything. Yeah, how we dress. You take it out yeah. in, in fashion and you look at, at a junior high or a high school and you can just – imagine the the conformity of of dress i i, yeah. I look at my son yeah. right and yeah. i'm like going 
why are you wearing a hoodie and black black jeans? You know, and 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 jeans only came in like two years ago. Before that, it was always sweats, right? You it wouldn't get me in in that because that's not what people wore. And and there's this idea of like that sovereignty over your own creativity. You know, yeah. is that really who you are? If it is, great. Yeah. But it seems like it's that conf, you know conforming to the social norm, and we do that in a variety of situations. You because said politics in part uh, because we need to, we have to be smart. We want to show that we're reliable team, yeah. teammates and everything. Uh, but we, we overcompensate. We go, we go a little right. too far and I would hold out like, how do we, how can we help more people understand that more often than we suspect the better team move, the better contribution I can make to my team is to challenge it a little. Yeah. Yeah. And challenge yeah. it, not challenge it too much. You can really go with the, um, you know, kind of the antibody <laughs> you know, metaphor right. here. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, get the, the immune system, the, the kind of the cultural immune system, you know, ramped up to 11, but um, <laughs> you, you want to figure out a way, how can I introduce some new thoughts in a way that can actually be heard, played with, considered, Etc. And and yeah, I think that's I, I think that's important. I just wish more people cared about bringing their thing to the table. Yeah, and I think it's hard because both from a DNA perspective that we've talked about that was e- evolved out to a certain yeah. degree, mm-hmm. and also it has been reinforced to going back to the the junior high thing. You know, if all of a sudden you show up in something that's that's different and way out there, it, you are not necessarily <laughs> for that, right? Well, unless, it, 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 junior high. unless you can, yeah. unless you can create a, a clique around that, right? Just, but that's and so we're, that is, we are the we know, are the people who do that. Yeah, it, and that it's hard to do individually, of course. It yeah. is, but there's there's that part, and so we just talked with. Um, uh, uh, Steve Martin and, and Joe Marks, who wrote in this book, Messenger, and they talk about, you know, the messenger, um, being more uh, having an influence on how people perceive the content of various different things. Absolutely. And you can think about that, right? The messenger that is, is, is wearing that new outfit. If they're perceived as somebody you want to aspire to, you're going to, then they're going to more likely follow it. But it's for the normal people, as you said, in that, you know, yeah. the, that other part, <laughs> it's harder to do. So, much so. absolutely. So, so, Adam, you and I have talked about music in the past, <laughs> and I know that as a Grammy Award winning producer, wait, oh, maybe that was a different. That was a different one. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about what you like to listen to. Oh my goodness! And, and so here's you thought the speed round was tough. Um, <laughs> early on, very quick background. I was a really good artist as a kid, visual artist, and and man, all my energies went into that. I was a better artist at age eleven than I am now. Uh, because at age 12, music came into the picture. And then I just like threw all my attentions into that. My first uh, training was on trumpet. So I play all the brass instruments. Uh, because you knew that the trumpet players get all the girls, right? That's primarily it. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way like electric guitar was going to be better than that. Um, no, uh, impossible. But then the next step was then at age, the year after that, a bunch of us got together and said, hey, let's start a band. And uh, the instrument you ended up with is what you could most quickly place your hands on. And so my family had this cheesy old Honer organ with a 180-pound Leslie 
uh, yes. Leslie yes. cabinet. <laughs> wow. And so, awesome. I be- so I became keys guy and our first practice was just essentially the, uh, the central rift to Inagata de Vida for about two hours. Uh, <laughs> And so why did you stop at two hours? That's my question. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the, the Inagata de Vida. Right? I, had, I, had very, I had very patient parents and we were down in the basement and it was all good. Um, but we, And when we talked about this, I just yeah. have to say that was my first experience playing with the band as well. <laughs> to, get, to get five guitarists, a drummer, and a keyboard player to do the, the riff to Inagata de Vida for hours. And that was yeah, all we exactly. could do. There, there was, there was well, nothing. Then, absolutely. And then, we, of course, we followed the expected um, expansion of the repertoire. And so the next song was Smoke on the Water. Uh, and then at some excellent, point, excellent choice. At some point, we actually figured out we could do China Grove by the Doobies. Uh, and so, so we, the, the great thing was is that we all sucked. <laughs> but we all kind of sucked more or less equally. But this is so my take on this, like, yeah, I'm not a bad musician now because I've been at it for 44 bloody years, you know? And so it's just really kind of the triumph of brute force, <laughs> you know, applied <laughs> and, and love and really loving doing it. You know, you just got to, for any new, for talent, talent acquisition is just loving something long enough to be willing to suck at it. Uh-huh. Right. And just going, okay, you gotta, gotta think about that one. But well, I, I'm actually just thinking that that's how I, you know, am at the point I am with <laughs> <laughs> like in everything in life. Uh, well, like I'm just thinking behavioral science and, and, you know, I loved it enough that I sucked at it Absolutely. for a long time until but, there I got, you know, but it's all, it's all about trends. So trend matters more than snapshot, right? I, yeah. I'm not great, but I know I'm better than I was two months ago. I mean, that's it's pretty, Teresa Amiable, right? The progress principle yeah, that you exactly. talked about. So it's uh, you know showing that progress and keeping improving and improving and improving. Absolutely. So so then Which anyhow, is, so with that as background, let me get into it. So what I'm really eclectic. I just love thoughtful. Look, you can tell good stuff in any genre, right? I mean, right, there's right. Re- there's there's crap everywhere, and there's brilliant stuff everywhere. Uh, I will say that I was kind of shocked when age peers as early as our late twenties, I had too many age peers were totally dissing rap. I'm going, yeah. What wasn't that long ago that your parents were dissing <laughs> wait, wait, rock and roll, rock and roll. And so, um, I won't say rap is my lead genre, but I mean, certainly I love, um, like I did, I, I did run the jewels and killer Mike. I just think killer Mike is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I don't agree with him on some things, but you know, it's, it's thoughtful. He's doing something different, right? Um, I will say, let me just take a step back, and, and um, Tim, you, hopefully you'll appreciate this. Overall, kind of big picture, I am a sucker for musical or, or like harmonic gadget plays, right? So uh, yeah. the major third chord instead of the minor third chord yeah. In the right place and time. I don't know. There's something going on there, uh, hormonally, neurologically, <laughs> whatever. That is just that can be such a cool move, and it's kind of inspiring and everything. The smart use in country and and some in some other, you know, Americana, some folk. The smart use of the the two seventh, resolving to the five instead of just the two minor, you know. 
So yeah, hurt, it, which is which, any idea? Right, which is a blues thing. It, yeah, it, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I am, I am, I'm sitting here with like lee dry leaves in the wind going well over my head. Just, just, uh, one, just right. one more example. Staring again in, in, in disbelief. So I, I refer to these as as harmonic gadget plays. I mean, they're they're you hear them often enough. When you hear them, I just kind of go, "Oh, that's that was cool." That was, it, it didn't seem gratuitous. It makes all the sense in the world, whatever. Uh, Steely Dan and Don't Take Me Alive do this thing where they do, um, they do B minor with a E minor bass, C with an F bass, and D with a G bass. So essentially you're going to, right. you're going to the fourth of, yes. of that chord. And in, in some ways it's probably just a major ninth, but it doesn't have that effect. It feels because of the voicing, it's just cool. And it just sounds different enough without it being, it somehow still works. So it's kind of pushing the boundary. It is unique and relevant. I mean, it's really, that's what I was going to go. Yeah. That's a right. unique and relevant sound. It's pushing the boundary. It's almost like if they just even tweaked any of those a little bit more, it would probably fall apart. But is, the, is there a tune where, where you feel like the major third is, is played particularly well? Like, like, like that, that change to go from the, the root to the major third. It's, I, I mean, I think you hear an awful lot, like in gospel stuff. So just, you know, um, if you start on C and then the next move is, uh, E seventh. Yeah, exactly. There, there's just something about it that is, I don't know. To me, it is inspiring. I have, I have no way of understanding why I'd love to understand the neurology of that, that mm-hmm. the, uh, the, 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 uh, acousto neurology of <laughs> the major yeah. third. Chord. Well, well, I'll give you an example. Pleasant Valley Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the monkeys, Pleasant, uh, which was written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin. So yeah. uh, hang in there, Kurt. So <laughs> when, when it goes to the chorus, it because it, 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 it's in, it's actually written in C or it's, yeah. it's written in A, but it, but it moves to the major third. Yeah, um, yeah. You know uh, when when it goes from C to uh, to E, and that's that's just a perfect example of wow that that is it feels good. It, it just feels has that really ooh. good. There's something there. Yeah. There's something deeply rooted in us that you know it's. Um, it just it, reliably it triggers, I think, a very similar response in most of the listeners. So there's that. So now, who do who do I love? Uh, again, still, um, I love overall. It, you're familiar with the term blood harmony. So where siblings like the Bee Gees, oh uh, Osmond yeah, Jackson. There, there's something yep. about the quality of just like even their their instrument, their vocal cords, and everything that's similar enough, yet just slightly different enough. It's almost like a cool. Like actually, a beneficial uncanny valley, uncanny valley of sound, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that that always sends a, a chill down my spine. I mean, that's that's just reliably just kind of like, oh man, that's awesome. That's that's just, yeah. that's just so cool. Um, but then some groups are so dang good that they can they can get really close to that without being relatives. Uh, and so one of the last times I heard this, where I thought, okay, I got to figure out what this song is, is uh, Ricky Gervais had this series on Netflix called Afterlife. And great series. The f- concluding scene is the group, the Thorns, singing their song um, "Among the Living." I'd never heard the song. Oh, yeah. I'd never heard the song before. But those harmonies kicked in. It was just oh, it's just so oh, it's so great. Those <laughs> those guys had had that unique blend. Yeah. They, they really. I think they got lucky. That, was, but, uh, but that is Matthew Sweet and Sean Mullins and one other guy. Yeah, and I think Sean Mullins was the X factor in yeah. that. Yeah, I, I feel like he was the voice that actually just pulled it out and just kind of like Crosby, Stills and Nash, oh, like there's just this magic. And it was Crosby that was the X factor. in that. A- a- Absolutely. And so really, you, you didn't bring Young in. 
yeah we love neil for other reasons so i'm a huge fan of power pop uh i think it probably stems from um my siblings are all a little bit older than me and so i don't remember life without the beatles so uh, uh at age yeah. my earliest memories of life involved the beatles uh, and so I think the Beatles are really are, you know, like the Tigris and Euphrates of, of, of modern music. And I think any album from rubber soul on, you can take any one track and you can, you can, I think you can make the case for any, any one track spawned a subgenre then afterward, you know, yeah. I mean, G- great songwriting, great production. Uh, I, I happen to think that revolver re- revolver is my favorite Beatles album because I think rubber soul uh, is to revolver as, uh, John the Baptist was to our, our Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I love, I I love that. Holy smokes. Well, okay. We're going to take all that and, um, and we're going to have some show notes that are just going to be absolutely outside the norm on this. (laughs) I'll I'll give you one more at my funeral and, and not to get grim or anything, but there will be three songs that we played at my funeral. One is uh, Crowded House's song, Don't Dream It's Over, which I, oh. I think is, if you read the lyrics, it's a modern hymn. It, it is. Oh, it's it's it is. a gorgeous yeah. song. I actually, I know a song. Yeah, there, there you go. go. Whoa, whoa, there you <laughs> go. Yeah, and, and it's, yeah, I mean, Neil Finn is God, you know. Yeah. Um, and then great go. Great voice, great guitar. Going yeah. with God, the second song will be God Only Knows, which uh, to, yeah. to play, I mean, Brian Wilson, obviously the genius that he is. I think his genius is no better represented than the chords and the arrangement and the production of that song. It's just, oh. yeah. Harmonically. It's, it's amazing. Absolutely. Okay. And then the final one is, we'll be a group sing along. Everyone's going to sing. Yes. We have no bananas. <laughs> who actually, who was the original artist on it that? It goes back into the twenties. I don't think anyone has it. The version I'm most familiar with is the Louis Prima one. That's that's what I'm thinking of uh, from the from the 50s or 60s probably. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, it's older than that. Yeah, okay. no, it goes back to the 20s. It was a depression era, or, or even pre-depression era. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, All righty. With that, Adam, thank you so so much for joining us. Absolutely, wow, this has been so fun. This has and, been tremendous, know. guys. Thank you so much. And, I, I, uh, I was could not have been more delighted to spend this time with you. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned with our behavioral groups discussion with Adam, have a free-flowing conversation, and whatever else comes into our yes and and I wish for brains. Both yes and and I wish for. I wish for you to be better at this. <laughs> I wish the same thing. <laughs> I wish for I me. was no. I wish I was better at it too. Oh no no no! <laughs> I'm the one who needs to actually improve. You you got it down. Man. Oh yeah. Oh you yeah. You got this podcasting thing like that. I'm just Joe Podcaster. In fact, people call me Joe. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> I have never heard you be called Joe before. I haven't you? People are calling me that all the time. All right, it's Joe short Podcaster. For, short for From Joe now Podcaster. on, that's going to be your name. No longer Tim Wuhan, it's Joe Podcaster. Okay, so what's up with this yes and and I wish for? This was a big this was a big part of uh, Adam's discussion to kind of get beyond. And by the way, yes and is a powerful tool. It is. It's let's, a great tool. And, let's and it's, not overlook that. I mean, Linnea Gandhi talked about it when we talked with her. Yeah. Um, we've, we, you know, uh, 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 
Sweeney, John Sweeney. Oh, God. yeah. Like that's one of his favorite tools ever. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and is a huge thing in improv, but it also allows us to be not stopping that thought process, that conversation, because you you normally stop when you say no and mm-hmm. bring in a but. So yes, and helps in doing that. What Adam does, though, is he brings us into this like innovation realm and adding in I wish for, which yeah. is a unique little way of taking yes and, I think, to another level of getting people to think yes and, and here's what I want out of this. Yeah, the, the I wish for is futuristic. It, it, it instantly implies that there is something, uh, it, it implies two things to me. One, it says, I'm not satisfied with the status quo. And there is something in the future that I think could be better. Right. And, and, I, I, loved, and I love that. Yeah. And I loved how he talked about, you know, he's not trying to be Debbie Downer, that no. this isn't an exercise in Pollyanna writing and unicorns, <laughs> right. you know, although I love, I love unicorns. So I wish he could have. Do you like Pollyannas it. too? <laughs> is there, what, what is a Pollyanna? Like a straight laced, you know, always play by the rules kind of person. It is. Oh, I didn't see. I I learned something new right here in this grooving session with you, Joe Podcaster. <laughs> yeah, just call me Joe. All right, that's just it. call you Joe. That, that's your name from now on, Joe. Yeah. So the the, the I wish for aspect is a really important. Uh, place to amp up your brainstorming and the way to think about your own product innovation. Right. I think that that was really a cool point. What else? What else struck you? So obviously we talked a lot about negativity bias. Oh yeah. And I think it's really key to point out how pervasive negativity bias is, particularly as we're thinking about trying something new as in innovation, that the idea of going beyond the status quo is something that for many of us, we get bogged down with this negativity, negativity bias. God, I can't talk. I'm sick and can't talk. It's all you're just You're doing crazy. great, though. Man. You're, you're doing great for, for not being well. All you know? right. Well, for- sorry, folks, for my nasally <laughs> head cold, not thinking straight thing. It's going anyway. to it's add to the vibe. The vibe. All right, Joe. Yeah. So here we go. Yeah. So this negativity bias has got lots of great support in the psychological community, right? Since it was since it was kind of identified. I mean, we, we, we've seen uh, you've You've actually recently noticed uh, New York Times actually uh, talked about uh, quoted Jonathan Haidt and uh, Roy Baumeister. You know these these towering figures within the behavioral science community about um, about how important, how foundational uh, negativity bias is. Right? right, right. So in that New York Times article that we'll we'll show in the or we'll have in the show notes, it was um, Jonathan Haidt said the mind reacts to bad things more quickly, strongly, and persistently than to equivalent good things. Yeah. So think about that. It reacts to bad things more quickly, strongly, and persistently than to equivalent good things. And Roy Baumeister was saying, it's evolutionary adaptive for bad to be stronger than good. It is so important for to stay alive. Right. But but we're not the, the trouble is we're not living in a world it's not I shouldn't say the trouble. The fact is we're not living in a world where we have to worry about the twig snap being a tiger. And so negativity bias doesn't play as uh, it's not as uh, uh, evolutionary adaptively uh, it's not necessary. It's anymore. not necessary. Thank you. Holy <laughs> crap! It's just not necessary anymore. And uh, it, at least to the degree that it was forty thousand years ago, eighty thousand years ago, hundred thousand <laughs> years ago, 
250,000 years ago. And you think, I listen to things in the past. (laughs) But this is a part of the problem, right? Is that uh, our brains are not yet fully adapted to deal with a world where we don't need so much negativity bias. Right. And and this is something uh, neuroscience has even gotten into this. So there was... uh, uh, an article in, in, in Psychology Today, uh, John uh, Cassiopo, and I'm sorry if I screwed that up, from the University of Chicago, uh, he showed pictures to people, uh, had them hooked up in an fMRI, showed pictures to people um, about positive things like a Ferrari or a pizza, or then he uh, showed them pictures of things that stir up negative emotions, right? Negative feelings like a mutilated face or a dead cat, and then also just kind of neutral ones, right? A, a, a plate or a hairdryer. And he, he recorded the electrical activity in the brain's cerebral cortex. Um, and so when he did that, it, he found that negative stimuli uh, had a higher reaction on that, uh, had a greater surge in electrical activity. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, our attitudes are more heavily influenced by downbeat news than good news. And we know this, right? In the absence of, of good uh, communication within a company, what do our brains do? We fill in the worst story. Yeah. It's, oh, they're not they're not communicating with us because, and then the the what what comes after because is negative. Yeah, you know that that that's just the way that that we're built. And what I love about Adam's work is that he's trying to say, let's get beyond that. Let's create environments where we where we're not pandering to the negativity bias. Yeah, and I think again, as he was talking about innovation, we can't get bogged down in the naysayers because if we do that. It limits our opportunity to really explore Absolutely. and to come up with those innovations that are going to really be transformational. Yeah, we've got to get into the yes and and into the I wish for. That that's where that's where he's he's urging us to go. Well, and he talks about you know about creativity means stepping out. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is was... exactly what we're just talking about right yeah. here. If you get bogged down in that negativity bias, you can't step out. You can't go beyond. And that's really an important thing. He brought so. up one of your heroes. Oh, Kurt Lewin. Yeah. University of Iowa. There you go. <laughs> he was there for like one year or something, yeah, wasn't he? I, he did some great research while he was there okay. for that one year. Okay. You okay. know, but I, I'm not trying to diss Kurt Lewin. I love his work yeah. too, by the way. You know, and, and and Kurt Lewin has this idea of change, right? Where we're frozen into uh, habits and our, our routines and our, our behavior. And then in order to change that, you have to unfreeze that. Right, yeah. and then you have to change the behavior, and then you refreeze that behavior in. It's mm-hmm. that freeze, unfreeze, freeze component. Yeah, the image that appeals to me in the in the drivers and, and restrainers story is that they find this balance, and that the drivers and the restrainers are basically op- opposing forces that are equal. Yeah, and that the way that we get them out, the way that we move forward, is to have is to either reduce the restrainer or increase the driver. Right. Right? Yeah, you know, to to unfreeze means we have to throw things out of balance, and and I love that. Uh, again, this is part of Adam's uh, whole thesis in, in in his life, and I right. just think and, it's terrific. And you go back to to Roger Dooley and our talk with Roger Dooley and talking about friction, right? And so, you know, we have those friction points in the way right. that we look at things, and if you reduce that friction, then that behavior is is, is more likely. Yeah. And then you have the the drivers. It's that fuel that that brings that up. So that's another important piece. And you got to change one of those two, right? Yeah. If you're going to be getting and stepping out. So you know, in, in that discussion about uh, creativity and stepping out, he talked about the Homo Luden story uh, by Johann uh, Huizinga. Okay. That, was, that whole playful ape thing was new to me. And that was just really cool. Um, 
uh, to be introduced to that. I thought Adam uh, had a had a great introduction to that, and 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 certainly plays into the, the it matches up exactly with John Sweeney's whole whole thesis of we've got to be playful, right. and when we get into play, that changes the way we we think and act. All right. So we'll link to that article or to to that in in the show notes, right? Definitely. All right. Fantastic. So can you explain to me what a major third is? <laughs> so you've got the root. Okay, so you've got let's let's. It's a let, tree. Now we're talking no, a tree. No, no. So so the root of so let's say we have an A chord or an A note. Okay. And the root is A. Okay. okay. Because we're in the key of A, right? So if we go up a third, A B C. So if we go A being one, B because because notes go in order, A B C D E F G. You know. Yeah. Stuff, got right? it. Got that. Okay. So if we go A B C, we get to C. That's the third, one, two, three, A, B, C. C is the third. And the major third would be the major uh, C chord. A minor third would be a C minor. Okay. So the major third is what we hear in Pleasant Valley Sunday when we go from the verse into the chorus. So it's the shift going from an A to a C that is what he was talking about. That's that, right. It's the shift. That's what he was liking. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like, because you don't go A to B to C, you go A, a to C. A to C. Exactly. So you skip that B. Yep. That I, I still don't really quite understand, but that's okay. Because, <laughs> you know, maybe our listeners do now. Well, you'll, you hear it. You okay. Know? Uh, the, the, the thing is, it's, we're exposed to all those different sounds. And major sevens have different sounds. Uh, sevenths have different sounds. Blues sounds like the blues because of the seventh. Okay. Um, so the major third is something that is, is characteristic of a particular sound that once you get attuned to it, and when you're in Pleasant Valley Sunday, and it goes from the first two lines of the chorus to the second two lines of the chorus, it shifts from C to E. And that's, you're going to, if you just pay attention to that, you go, oh, that's what it sounds like. And for some reason, Adam loves that sound. Yeah. It really, really, you know, uh, floats his boat. I'm not <laughs> sure why, but it does. <laughs> Well, I don't know, but that's very interesting. And thank yeah. you for the explanation. <laughs> you, you got it. I actually feel like I was useful. Yeah, so, yeah so. I, I learned a couple things. I learned about Pollyanna and I learned about major <laughs> thirds. This has been a great grooving session. So, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so please, listeners, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for hanging in there. And uh, check out our bonus track, which is coming up uh, very shortly. Kurt's going to do our bonus track. And if you haven't checked out Weekly Grooves, Go out and give it a give it a listen because we're really uh, excited about this whole new podcast channel that we've created. Thank you. Hey everybody, this is Kurt with the bonus track. I just want to start with a quick thank you to all of the listeners who have given us positive feedback about this the bonus track. As we've mentioned before, it was an idea served up by one of our listeners, and we're glad that you continue to help us make behavioral groups better. Keep those cards and letters, as Tim would say, coming. And thank you. In this episode, our conversation with Adam Hansen focused mostly on innovation and ideas from his book, Outsmarting Your Instincts. First, Adam discussed the prominent roles that negativity bias, confirmation bias, and availability bias play in our lives. Needless to say, Tim and I couldn't agree more. It's much easier for humans to assume the worst than than to imagine the best of all potential outcomes. And that has its roots in our ancestors' experience in the world. Even though we live in a world where we don't have to worry about the same life-threatening experiences our ancestors did, our 21st century DNA is still informed 
by what was going on 100,000 years ago. We need to do, as Viktor Frankl said, is separate our response from the stimulus. In other words, think about the context we're in before we react. Life would be a lot less stressful that way. Second, the most underutilized tool we can take to work and use every day is yes and, and tying that in with I wish for. Bringing a new idea to our status quo workflows could be, could be the greatest thing we do for our careers. That is, unless you're an accountant. Maybe if you're an accountant, just stick, stick with the status quo, all right? The point is, every company needs to innovate in order to grow, and you could help innovate your area of the workplace by using yes and and I wish for a couple of times every day, just to see where that lands you. That leads us to the third point we want to recap. Creativity means stepping out of the boundaries of your current job and into what Adam referred to as the magic circle. That needs to be playful and a safe space in order to innovate. We want to encourage each of you at your work to create safe and playful spaces where you and your colleagues can innovate safely. So now we get to the groove idea for the week. Tomorrow, or today if you're listening to this in the morning, go out and do at least three purposeful yes ands. Let us know how that goes. We'd love to hear from you. Lastly, want to thank all of you for listening and would be very grateful if you leave us a rating and a review as soon as you finish listening to this episode. It helps us show up and search results for people like you who are interested in the application of behavioral science. A rating takes no time at all. Just scroll down in the app, click on the five-star button, and you're done. And a review takes only a few seconds to write how much you enjoy listening to behavioral groups. With that, thank you and keep in touch. Thank you.